Good morning. Well, every day of my sixth grade year, I knew that he was going to be waiting on me. There in Dunbar, West Virginia, I was 11 years old. I would step off of my parents' bright green AstroTurf porch, and I would start making my way to the bus stop. And with every step, I knew that he was waiting there on the other end. <clears throat> he was the 12-year-old that I think started shaving when he was about eight years old. <laughs> and I'd walk down 25th Street, turn the corner, and then it started. I was this 11-year-old, God bless me, and I'd hear things like, hey, four eyes, did your mom give you that haircut? Did anybody else ever hear something like that? It's rough on a, on a sixth grader. And it went on and on. And, and, and he, he bullied me this whole year. And it was very difficult dealing with that. And I remember I was too scared to tell the teachers because I didn't know what the fallout was going to be. I remember not telling my parents because I was kind of ashamed of the whole thing, to be honest. <coughs> and that whole sixth grade year, morning after morning, I went through the same thing over and over and over again. It was about two years ago, my wife and I dedicated our son Landry to the Christian faith. And my concern is, as Landry grows up, that when he steps off our front porch someday, that he is going to be facing a world that is very hostile to the faith that I pray that he holds. There was an article written by a man named Michael Spencer, that I want to share with you this morning. This appeared in the, uh, the Christian Science Monitor. And this is what he said. This was written a few years back, not long ago. He said, We are on the verge within 10 years of a major collapse of evangelical Christianity. This breakdown will follow the deterioration of the mainline Protestant world, and it will, fundament it will fundamentally alter the religious and cultural environment in the West. Within two generations, evangelicalism will be a house deserted of half of its occupants. In the Protestant 20th century, evangelicals flourished, but they will soon be living in a very secular and religiously antagonistic 21st century. This collapse will herald the arrival of an anti-Christian chapter of the post-Christian West. Intolerance of Christianity will rise to levels many of us have not believed possible in our lifetimes. And public policy will become hostile toward evangelical Christianity, seeing it as the opponent of the common good. Millions of evangelicals will quit. Thousands of ministries will end. Christian media will be reduced, if not eliminated. Many Christian schools will go into rapid decline. I'm convinced the grace and mission of God will reach to the ends of the earth. But the end of evangelicalism as we know it is close. Now that was written in March of 2009. And I believe we fared much better actually than sort of this bleak picture that this man is presenting. However, things are changing in America. And it's not necessarily trending in the direction that we would like. I know that those people that categorize themselves as nuns, that's spelled N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. But N-O-N-E-S, those are the people that categorize or self-identify as 
uh, atheists or as agnostics. The number of people in America that identified themselves as a N-O-N-E nun in 2007 was 16%. That number is now around 23%. And among millennials, that's those born after 1980, about 35% would put themselves in that category as none. What will you and I do as we begin to see Christianity waning more and more and more in the United States of America? How are we going to handle that? How do we handle living in a country that is losing its Christian influence? We're in this season of Advent this morning, and we're going to continue looking at those events that lead up to the birth of Christ and this morning, in the face of this coming America, we're going to look at three things to dedicate our lives to. Three things to dedicate our lives to. We're going to look at the life of Zachariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. And in that, we'll see these three things to, de to dedicate our lives to. Now, before we go into that text, <clears throat> I want to give a little background. Because, you see, there's been 400 years of silence. If we go to the Old Testament, we, we see the last prophet... He would come 400 years before Christ. And in those, those years, the, the rabbis referred to them as the silent years. They were desperately waiting and hoping, wondering, when will God punch his way in here again? When are we going to hear from him again? So the world was listening and waiting. And in that time, many empires were going to come and go. The Greeks, the Persians, for a short, short time, the Egyptians... And now the Romans are ultimately going to land and rule in this period of time. And it's during this time of Roman rule, in this, an obscure, in, in this obscure province of Judea, in this little town of Jerusalem, God is finally going to end what had been 400 years of silence. So we go into the text now. We'll be in Luke chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7. We'll start there. We'll, we'll work our way through this chapter. If you would please stand with me for the reading of Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. During the reign of Herod, king of Judea, there lived a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And he had a wife named Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they did not have a child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. You may be seated. So we're given this time period. It was during the reign of, the king, uh, of king Herod, uh, around 37 to 4 B.C. And then we're, we're introduced to this older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah was this priest uh, in this, this um, division of Abijah. There were actually 24 different division of priests, and they were divided up in these divisions uh, during the reign of David. And they were called on duty uh, twice a year for one week. So one week, you would have, you, your division would come in and have this, uh, this period of ministry in the temple. His wife was also... A descendant of Aaron, the priests were encouraged to met, uh, marry the daughters of other priests. 
And the text says that they were righteous in the sight of the Lord, that they were following all the commandments of the Lord blamelessly, but they didn't have a child. And Elizabeth was barren. The desire to have a child in biblical times was enormous. For men, this meant the continuation of their name. With very little knowledge of the, of the, the afterlife, men were counting on an heir for the name to continue. Then for women, it was enormously important too. Much of their identity came from motherhood. They were uh, subject to ridicule from other people if they were unable to have kids with this compounded the, the, the shame they felt. Also, children were their 401k. You really didn't have a retirement plan, so they were dependent on their kids to take care of them when they got older. I know for many people that's horrifying to think of today that you'd have to have that kind of dependence on your kids, but you were depending on them to take care of you. And almost always, it was considered the woman's fault if the couple was unable to conceive and have a child. Many of you uh, may be able to relate to this story. My wife and I suffered with infertility uh, for quite a while. Um, and it was about two years ago today that I mentioned earlier that we dedicated our son Landry. And we didn't know that that day would ever come. Frankly, we didn't think that day uh, would ever come. So we know firsthand that there is a lot of heartbreak that goes into the pain of infertility. And um, that part hasn't changed. That part of the story is timeless. As a, matter of, as, as a matter of fact, my wife would even relate the pain of infertility to losing her dad. It hurt her that deeply when we were unable to have a child. And what strikes me about this passage is that even though Zechariah and Elizabeth faced what they would later call a disgrace of not having children, the text says that they were blameless in the sight of God. They kept serving. They kept the commandments. That doesn't mean they were perfect. Nobody's perfect. When they messed up, they fessed up. When they messed up, they asked for forgiveness. They were participating in the temple. They forgave when forgiveness was needed. They never cast God aside, even though he had not answered their prayers up to this point. So Zachariah and Elizabeth faced the disgrace of not having children. And yet, as the text says, they were blameless in the eyes of God. You know, we're all going to face disappointments in this life. As a matter of fact, if you've suffered through infertility, you know the pain of that. And I'll never forget an article I read in USA Today in 2014 that couples that face infertility... Uh, will actually have three times higher rate of divorce than couples who do not. And all kinds of things are right at our fingertips when we struggle through the pain of disappointment. Drug abuse. Alcohol abuse. There's all kinds of unhealthy ways of dealing with this. And never have these things been more readily right there at our fingertips than they are right now. And not only those things, but... It can lead to bitterness and jealousy. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe disappointment has brought something like that into your life. And maybe you're feeling it right now. Could be over any number of things. Could be over a job loss. Could be over a promotion that someone else got instead of you. It could be because that person you wanted to date is now dating somebody else. All these things can bring about disappointment. It doesn't have to be infertility. And it could be any number of things in all shapes and sizes. 
Betrayal by a friend, death, Christmas plans that have fallen through. And in light of that, here in this first point of the sermon, I actually want to just offer uh, three healthy steps. If you are facing disappointment, three healthy steps to deal with that. Um, and the first is simply to mourn. If you've been disappointed by something, if you have faced something that you weren't anticipating in a negative way, the first step is just to not be happy about it. You know, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, he didn't put on a big happy face and act like everything was okay. The text says that he wept. He didn't pretend like things were all right. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. I know with infertility, it takes a long, long time to get over that. I had to mourn, but not like my wife did. I wasn't the one with a baby doll and a carriage when I was six, seven, eight years old. There's a mourning. Pray about it. Be honest with God about how you're feeling. So first mourn, and then secondly, adjust your expectations. Things did not happen the way you had planned, so now you've got to make an adjustment. Now, if you are well into your 60s and you're still mourning the fact that you didn't make it into the NBA, well, again, you've got to adjust your expectations. Probably not going to happen. Um, we all want to excel at things, but issues arise when we believe our happiness is based on what we're expecting to get. And when it doesn't happen, We've got to learn to adjust our expectations. What happens if you lose that job you love? What happens if you don't get that promotion? What happens when we don't get the diagnosis that we're hoping for? By the way, it's important to note that you can live a very fulfilled life having never been married and never having children. Some of the ex best examples uh, of people walking with the Lord I know are people who didn't get married and didn't have kids. As a matter of fact, the story we're leading into here, the birth of John the Baptist who's going to herald the coming of Christ. The text never says he was married, and the text says that he never had children. So I certainly don't want to paint the picture that you have to have these things in order to be fulfilled. I know wonderful examples of people who had neither of those. So first we mourn, second we adjust our expectations, and finally, get moving. Get moving. Don't just stay in that place indefinitely. Uh, we don't want to just wallow in disappointment no matter how great it is. Take the steps to explore a new possibility. I know that my wife, when we found out that we may not be able to have kids, she said, you know what, I'm going to become a counselor. And it worked out fantastic. She's, a, she's an amazing counselor. Um, people were telling her life story anyway, and now she gets to get paid for it. So there's other things you can do. I'll never forget that day when she walked in and said that. So first of all, like Zachary and Elizabeth, and now I'm moving away from these steps of dealing with disappointment, dedicate yourself to being blameless. Even in the midst of disappointment, even though you may be walking through those steps of disappointment, even though you may be mourning, you can still be blameless, handling disappointment in a healthy way in God-honoring way and not sinfully because the potential is always there and bitterness and jealousy are always trying to work their way in. Then the narrative continues. And in the next section, we find out that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to burn incense in the temple. I'm going to summarize the next section of scriptures. He was chosen by Lot. There were about 8,000 priests who had this privilege 
usually it was just once in a lifetime of going and going into the temple, and there was a table that sat outside the Holy of Holies. In the temple, there were rooms within rooms. One was called the Holy of Holies that housed the Ark of the Covenant. Just outside of that was something called the Holy Place. And in that area, there was a table there in which, on which incense would be burnt as an offering to God. And then something happened. While he was there, an angel came to him. The angel Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Daniel, now appears to Zechariah inside the temple. Now, this, this would have been mind-blowing. Because now, 400 years of silence is about to end. This ancient being comes to him and has a message for him. And says that there's going to be a son, that the Lord had heard his prayers. And that he and Elizabeth are going to give birth to a son named John. And starting in verse 17, the text says, continuing on, this, this message from the angel, and he will go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Wow. I, can you even get your head around this? Imagine giving permission one time in your life to go inside of a building that you'd only been in part of before, and now you're inside the holy place, and an angel appears to you. This is epic, and they're going to have a child. Uh, and they didn't think that would ever happen. It just seemed too good to be true. And we can see by Zachariah's reaction, he thought it was too good to be true. After hearing all that, hearing about the joy, the wonderful things that, that John's going to do, having this epic, transcendent event in this holy place, how does he respond? Well, how can I be sure of this? Are you sure about this? And what does he say? For I am an old man, and my wife is old. I mean advanced in years. He was smart enough to say, my wife is not old. She, she's just advanced in years. He knows don't call the wife old. What I love about the scriptures is we get it warts and all. Remember, he's described as a righteous and blameless man, and yet look at how he responds I find great comfort when those whom the Bible labels as faithful and righteous still screw up. That gives me great hope. He was in terror at first sight. Now he's in awe inspired by what he sees, but he's got doubt. This is confusing for him. Oh, we're old. How can we have a child in our old age? And when confusion steps in like this, it can produce doubts. It's when we don't understand, well, what is God doing here? Why am I going through this? I mean, is he even really there? God, are you listening? Remember, 400 years of silence. And Zachariah and Elizabeth have been praying a long time. This isn't new. A very similar occasion happens in the Old Testament when we say Abraham and Sarah. Abraham had a faith like nobody else's, but 
But what did he do when he was told he was going to have a child in their old age? Actually, it was, it was her this time. She laughed. She laughed when she heard this. And it can cause confusion and it can cause doubt when these kind of circumstances pop up. And frankly, I believe that just about everybody at some point experiences some kind of doubt in their faith. If you look back at some of the, the greatest theologians, Calvin, Luther, even Charles Spurgeon, all said that they struggled with doubt. Charles Spurgeon would go further to say that he doesn't know that faith is really worth its salt unless somebody has doubted it at some point in their walk. Because it can be hard to believe. I remember the very first, the very first funeral that I ever did was for a man whose child had been born with a very difficult disease. And because his child was born with that disease, he, he was never willing to trust God. He was, he was never willing to say that God was good. How could God be good in his estimation if his child was born with this disease? And it wasn't until he was at the very end of his life. And by the grace of God, I got to go to him two weeks before he died, and I, I shared the gospel with him. And he... And as soon as I asked him, has anybody ever shown you in the scriptures what it takes to be saved? He just broke down crying. I thought, well, I think, I think God has got this guy. And he trusted the Lord then and there. But he spent a lifetime struggling and doubting. You know, my wife shared with me her own doubts when we were in the midst of infertility. You know, when she came to me and said that, I said, you know, I think this is just part of your journey. You just struggle through this. I get it. I think we've all struggled at some point. How could God be good? I never challenged her on that. Fortunately, she did struggle through those doubts and land on a solid place. And actually, if you find yourself doubting, again, you're in good company. But these doubts, they can cause soul fatigue. As a matter of fact, what Paul says that running the Christian life he says it's like a race. And when we have doubts, it's like we're carrying these big rocks on our back running this race. So a couple of things, I don't have a slide for this, but a couple of things that I think are very helpful when we are having doubts is one, talk to a friend about it who's maybe not struggling at that time. The faith of somebody else can actually strengthen our own faith. Don't let pride keep you from speaking to someone about this. Don't don't let pride make you hide in that sense. Talk to somebody. It can be very strengthening. And then second, read the book of John. You know, the book of John was written so you could believe what it was Christ has done for you. So I would suggest those two things. Um, and, then, and then see where you're at after that. Because you will face confusing circumstances. So dedicate yourself, one, to blamelessness. Second, to trusting God even through difficult times. And if this, if this message is new to you today, let me just say that you can take that first step of trusting God by simply believing what it was Jesus did for you. He died for you. He was resurrected as a testament to the forgiveness of all sins. You can receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ simply today by calling out to him, understanding you're a sinner and that Christ died for you, and you can enjoy the first step of your walk today. So dedicate yourself, one, blamelessness, two, to trust in God, and then we move on. Because as a result of Zechariah's response and his disbelief of what the angel said to him, 
He is stricken both deaf and dumb. He, he can't speak. He can't hear. And he comes out of the temple, and the priests are wondering, well, why were you in there for so long? What, you can imagine the look on this guy's face after what all just happened. He steps out. Now he can't speak. He can't hear what they're saying. And what we have here in verse 22 in Scripture is the first game of charades that was ever played. <laughs> he says, when he came out, he was not able to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. Can you imagine? How do you say, an angel, a halo came to me. He was, I don't know what it looked like. But he communicated to them uh, what was happening. And, and then he can't rejoice. His, his wife becomes pregnant. He can't rejoice with her. The text goes on to describe the same angel Gabriel also appeared to Mary, announced to her that she would become pregnant and give birth to Christ. And then we get to verse 59. It says, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother replied, No! He must be named John. Now, that was a huge red flag. They said to her, But none of your relatives bears this name. So they made signs to the baby's father, again, the charades, inquiring what he wanted to name his son. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue released, and he spoke. What's the first thing he did? He was blessing God. All their neighbors were filled with fear, and throughout the entire hill country of Judea, all these things were talked about. All who heard these things kept them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the Lord's hand was indeed with him. So this naming ordeal, it takes up several verses in this passage because it was a big deal. Naming the son was a big deal. There was a precedent that usually they would, the, the father's name would be used, but if not the father's name, then the grandfather's name would be used. And the crowd believes they need to honor Zechariah. They may be thinking, well, Elizabeth has tried to take advantage of the fact that he can't talk. But that wasn't the case. So even though their family is there, their friends are there, they're pressuring them to succumb to these cultural norms, they're unwilling to do it. Zechariah had learned his lesson. You don't question things when God tells you to do something. And Elizabeth evidently knew that something had gone through here. Now, not much has changed over the years. Because we also have to courageously stand in the way of peer pressure. Now, I think that's only going to intensify. And I hear these stories of what young people go through today. And the peer pressure that they undergo uh, in the schools. And it is, it's not easy. One of the most humbling things that ever happened to me. I used to work for the Navy. And I was sitting in my office. There was a man in my office who was a mentor of mine. And somebody came in and they told a, a really off-color joke. And what did I do? I started laughing. That man walked out. And this was tough. This man who had served as a mentor to me, never professed to be a Christian, came to me and said, why did you laugh at that joke? He said, I know that's not what you believe. And he called me right there on the carpet. Because I gave in. There's always peer pressure. 
And that was a tough second. But I tell you what, it taught me. You people are watching about how we respond. Do we just go along to get along? You know, we're quickly coming into a time in which if you refer to homosexuality as sin, you could very well be labeled a white supremacist. You could very well be treated in the same way because this is becoming a protected sort of class. How are we going to respond when that kind of pressure and that kind of heat is turned up on us? I'll never forget the, uh, the TV show uh, with Chip and Joanna Gaines. They were being criticized for going to a church uh, where they said that the pastor was homophobic because he called, uh, he called out same-sex marriage as being wrong, essentially. And I'll never forget what this man says. His name is Jimmy Siebert, and he's the pastor of Antioch Community Church. And he made this comment when same-sex marriage was legalized. He said, we're being called to a higher calling a greater compassion and love, but a greater clarity than ever before because it is coming now. Starting Monday morning, we will not have that option anymore. The law was about to be passed that Monday. And he said, and with that will come persecution. You know, there may come a day when a church may no longer be able to keep its tax-exempt status if they're not willing to succumb to this. And to that I say, so what? So what? We can't afford to not, we cannot afford to not follow the word of God even when it's hard, even when there's going to be penalties. We have got to stay on track. So the last thing we dedicate ourselves to is courageous conviction. Courageous conviction. How are we going to handle the future when we're facing it down, in the face of more pressure, in the face of a of a media more willing to persecute? How do we face down these times when America's not going to look like it once did? And we go through things perhaps for the generations before us have never gone through. I'd like to close uh, today by telling you about a family in Texas uh, that Melissa and I knew from our, our time there. We were attending a church with this couple that within a two-week span went through an extremely difficult time. Uh, she found out that she had um, advanced cancer and she was going to have to go through chemotherapy. Right after that, his mother was put in hospice. And I was struck by something that the wife put on Facebook. This was something that she'd written not long after she'd gotten her diagnosis and she knew what she was going to be facing. And this is what she said in response to all this. She said, well, the last few days have been so hard on many levels. In fact, I had an epic meltdown last night, mad and upset at our circumstances. And if I'm perfectly honest, questioning God and his faithfulness. Well, let me tell you that God has been answering my anger and questions with tenderness and persistence long before last night. He has been very bold in trying to show us that he is absolutely in this. He has not changed the circumstances but he continues to use all of you, speaking to her church, to show us his love and joy to help renew our courage, hope, and joy. We've been showered with notes, gifts, food, hugs, transportation of our kids, etc. She said, and tonight a dear group of people from church came to our house and surprised to cheer us with Christmas carols. As they sang of the ultimate hope and joy that this season heralds, 
I realized God was specifically addressing some of my ranting of last night. So I encourage you. No doubt you have problems and stresses in life as well. I want you to know that you are not alone. God is absolutely aware of it. And he will be blessing you in its midst. He may not remove the problem itself, he, but he will give you strength to endure. At least, that is the lesson I'm slowly learning. And he will give you the strength to endure. Please pray with me. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we live in a culture that seems to be increasingly at odds with you and increasingly unwilling to believe in you, I pray that you would give us courage like we have never had before. God, disappointments will come. Difficulties will come. Confusion and trouble will come. But Lord, I pray in the face of all that, you would give us the strength to dedicate ourselves to blamelessness, to trusting you, Lord, and to walk with courage, with a strong conviction that you're with us through everything. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thank you all for being here today. You're dismissed.